Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we examine the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica is new technology making conventional military assets irrelevant. And I am joined now by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Fred Kagan, the Christopher DeMuth Chair and Director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Fred, thanks for being with us. It's good to be with you. Okay, so the animating question of this issue, this sort of top-shelf technology, it's gotten a lot of attention in the press over the past decade or so, drones, cyber warfare, satellite technology, has it reduced the significance of conventional resources? Now, rather than answering that question in the abstract, you use in your piece not only a tangible example but a present-day one, the situation in Ukraine, which perhaps points to something more complicated than an either-or relationship between new technology and old. Explain that. Well, the situation in Ukraine is, is fascinating for a lot of reasons, including that the fighting is going on in places that were the sites of archetypal massive armor battles in the Second World War. And so seeing those names in the press and seeing what's going on now, it's an interesting juxtaposition. So you have on the ground, a very complicated situation where you don't have conventional armies fighting it out anymore. You have some conventional forces on the Ukrainian side, and you have a lot of irregulars on the separatist side. But the irregulars are backed up by forces that were trained in Russia, that in some cases are Russian forces, within Ukraine. Even more importantly, though, they're backed up by large conventional mobilization that the Russians have maintained on Ukraine's borders, which has served to shape the conflict. So even as you have a lot of unconventional conflict on the ground at a regular war, you still have important roles being played by conventional military forces, uh, both shaping and supporting what's going on. And there's an interesting observation, one of many in your piece, that talks about how the presence of the one affects the other. Read from the piece briefly. You write, quote, the threat of conventional conflict continues to deter the use of conventional forces. U.S. and NATO forces, more than Ukraine's own very meager military, are helping persuade Russian President Vladimir Putin to pursue an irregular invasion. NATO air power would decimate Putin's armored columns if he hurled them at Kiev, assuming the West chose to fight. Putin chooses to avoid the risk at least as long as is the indirect approach is succeeding. So is this the dynamic that we're likely to continue seeing around the globe in a conflict between two rivals who are unevenly matched in terms of conventional forces? The automatic impulse is for the weaker side to ramp up the unconventional approach? In general terms, yes. Um, and what we're seeing is that because the United States established a degree of dominance in conventional warfare, that nobody's really able to challenge at this point, um, that people don't want to take us on on that level, so they take us on at lower levels. The, one of the interesting dynamics here, though, is that Putin has also announced his intention to build up his conventional force in a very significant way. And he started trying to do that. It's been fits and starts. We'll see if he becomes more committed to that. And it's interesting that he's talking about that because it's in contrast, for example, to the way that the Iranians have proceeded but the Iranians have basically ceded to us 
the conventional space and are not talking about building conventional forces to match us. They think the asymmetric, irregular approach is the way to go. Putin, working on a tradition of Russian great power status and Soviet power, seems much less comfortable yielding, permanently yielding the conventional aspect to us. The Chinese also seem uncomfortable with that. And so I think we, we need to be careful as we look out into the future in imagining that everyone will, will stay having decided that they're just going to yield the high, high level of war to us and pursue irregular options. So if you're a major conventional power, if you're the United States, how does the emphasis from the places, that the countries that are looking at irregular methods, how does that affect our calculus? How do we have to change our approach in order to be able to respond to those indirect threats better? I think it's very important for us to, to understand the need to continue to have tremendous capabilities at all levels of warfare. It continues to be incredibly important that we have overwhelming conventional military power precisely because it will tend to take the prospect of conventional war off the table in a lot of cases. But we also have to be able to deal with the asymmetrical approaches, the irregular approaches that adversaries will choose rather than trying to contest our conventional power. And so going back to your initial comment, this can't be an either or for us strategically because we can be defeated by irregular approaches. We can be defeated in our objectives at any event by asymmetrical approaches if we're not able to respond to them. But if we focus all of our energies only on those things and we lose our predominance on the conventional side, then we run the risk of inviting adversaries to pursue strategies that could lead to major conflict, which at the end of the day is likely to be much more devastating and destructive to the world than the kinds of irregular conflicts that we've been seeing. Right. I want to ask you actually about both sides of this equation. Let me start on the on the asymmetrical side. Um, as this stuff becomes more pronounced, can you give our audience a sense of how long it takes these changes in thinking to penetrate the military? In other words, everyone's familiar with the cliche that too often we fight the last war. Is the modern American military as nimble as it should be in adjusting to these changes as they develop? I think the modern American military um, has a very vibrant uh, intellectual debate about what the future of war is going to look like and what, what lessons we should draw. And I think that intellectually we are nimble enough uh, to think this through. I think we are shackled and, and immobilized by a procurement process that uh, requires that weapons developments take 15 to 20 years and that drive the budget in a way that drives strategic thinking in a way that strips us of our agility. And I think that is not primarily the responsibility or the fault of the United States military. I think this is a place where Congress really needs to look at itself and the executive branch needs to look at itself and, and decide whether it continues to be a good way to go to maintain these procurement and budgetary structures that lead to ossification and inflexibility in military thinking and planning um, for the benefits that they're perceived to provide. Let's talk a little bit about this dynamic with more conventional warfare, between more conventional powers. Uh, let's say that down the road, the United States and China or the United States and Russia 
were to go to war, and we say down the road, so we may be talking about a little bit more parity than we have right now. What are the variables, in your opinion, that would determine whether you're looking at maybe more of a propensity for indirect warfare, like what we've seen in, in Ukraine, or something that comes down in the end to something on more conventional lines, hardware versus hardware, manpower versus manpower? Um, obviously, a lot of factors go into those kinds of calculations. Um, in general terms, you know, large conventional operations tend to be or tend to look like the best way to ensure that a state is going to be able to achieve uh, large-scale objectives, either offensive or defensive, in a short period of time. That's the main attraction of conventional operations most of the time is that they are appear to be decisive. So. The calculus about whether to use conventional operations or not comes down in part to what are the scale of the objectives being pursued, what is the perceived timeline, and what is the perceived requirement for achieving a decisive effect in a given period of time. Right now, you know, we see the Iranians pursue a very patient approach on the whole, and the Chinese pursue on the whole a very patient approach. Putin who is not generally known for his patience, has also been pursuing a relatively patient approach in Ukraine. The, the way that that flips, one of the ways that that flips is if he becomes persuaded, for example, that he really has, is facing a window of opportunity in which he either acts or will be defeated, or is persuaded that the overarching correlation of forces is shifting against him in a way that he will lose the ability to accomplish the objectives he wants to in a certain period of time and simultaneously becomes persuaded either that he can prevail in a conventional conflict or that if he acts with conventional forces, he will not be met with conventional forces. So those would be the kinds of calculations in general that would tip this over. You also mentioned in your piece that one of the dynamics that has has changed in the modern world is that the nature of um, the resources that would have to be moved and also the nature of, of technology, of our ability to know what's going on elsewhere in the world, sort of undermines any capacity for for surprise that a, a major invading force could have. Explain that a little bit. Well, I think, you know, this is a common problem for countries like ours, which are fundamentally big islands and which therefore sort of get to imagine periodically how we might intervene in places that are not contiguous with us. And too often, we saw the British really fell prey to this in the interwar years uh, in a way that was actually devastating because it led them never really to think about the problem of how to break through entrenched uh, fortification systems, again, because they assumed that problem away um, when they were looking at it in the 20s and 30s, even though that's what they had faced um, in the First World War. We also sometimes succumb to this, and we sometimes imagine that, you know, there's an empty beach somewhere that we would choose to land on, and we would be able to use certain kinds of tools and capabilities and systems because the enemy wouldn't be ready for us. And I think it's important to understand the degree to which the world is now mobilized for conflict and or involved in conflict. And the sheer geographical expanse of conflict today is such that there are very few states in Africa, in much of Asia, even in parts of Europe now, that are not either engaged in conflict of some variety or preparing for conflict of some variety. And that means that the prospect of being able to find that empty beach 
and being able to come in with a forced entry operation as we would like against an enemy that's not entirely ready for us is just very slim. We're, we're very unlikely to find that kind of situation. Final question that I'll ask you. This is from the end of your piece at Strategica, quoting you again. This situation is not new. The 1920s found the U.S., Britain, and the Soviet Union engaged in numerous small-scale interventions and counterinsurgencies. Experts claim that the new technologies of the day, tanks and airplanes, had ended the era of major land warfare. Those experts were wrong. But the war that came in 1939 after a number of irregular foreshocks in Czechoslovakia, Austria, Ethiopia, and elsewhere that eerily resemble recent conflicts in Georgia and Ukraine looked nothing like the war that had ended in 1918. Now, obviously, you're focused there on the on the technology question, but it's, it's hard not to linger on that turn of phrase, irregular foreshocks that eerily resemble recent conflicts. Fred, is the world as volatile today as it was in the period between the two world wars? And if so, how should we expect that volatility to resolve? Um, I think the world is as volatile today as it was. Um, I think... Uh, when you look at the, again, ongoing major conflicts and the things that bind them across countries and across regions. So on the one hand, you have the Al-Qaeda type violent Islamist ideology that is in, has in, involving almost the entire Muslim world and most of its neighbors in conflict. Um, on the other hand, you have great power uh, tensions in Asia, uh, based, I would say, on what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese claim it's based on what we and the Japanese are doing, which is also obviously interestingly parallel to the kinds of uh, complaints that were going on in the 30s. Um, and you now have a Russian threat in Europe uh, that is distressingly uh, similar in its kind of rhetoric to the sort of threat that Hitler posed. And uh, I'm sorry, I apologize to the people who don't like this analogy, but when you read Putin's statements and you compare them to Hitler's early speeches, uh, there are some very, very uncanny similarities. And it's very worrisome because people also tend to forget that in the mid, early mid-1930s, Germany was a trivial military power. Germany had no real capability to stand up against even the very reduced forces of Great Britain and France. And it wasn't until very late in the decade that the German rearmament program started to produce military forces that were significant. And even then, um, they were at best um, peer capable with the forces that potentially faced them if those forces had been properly designed and shaped and executed. So, I don't want to say that this is 1938 and we're heading inevitably toward 1939 because I don't believe in historical inevitability, and there are, of course, differences. But if you ask the question, are we looking at a situation that contains elements of volatility, instability, and drive toward escalation that could theoretically lead to a situation similar to what emerged in 1939, I would have to say, yes, it's a possibility. Well, with that in mind, I'm sure that we'll be talking to you again soon in the future. Our guest has been Fred Kagan, the Christopher DeMuth Chair and Director of the Critical Threats Project at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his piece and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting Strategica at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Fred, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.